Hello and welcome to episode 37 of Double Reel, the monthly podcast magazine for the discerning film nerd. It's May 2023 and the world enters a bright new era after the coronation of Britain's new dynamic young king. We're here to get you through the month with a big helping of cinematic content for your waiting ears. My name's James Adamson and I'm a film nerd with a geeky love of film and obscure stories from the world of cinema and a lot of opinions. Joining me on the podcast is my co-host, also called James Adamson. Welcome, James. It's good to be back. It's lovely weather we're having and there's some great films coming out. We aim to provide you with the podcast equivalent of the monthly film magazines you used to buy in the newsagent, packed with a range of features from the world of film. We divide each monthly issue into three parts, which we release a week at a time to keep your feed fed through the month. This is the first part of the episode, Double Real Monthly. We'll look at recent film news, what new releases are heading our way, and review any new films we've seen since the last episode. We'll also discuss how we're getting on with the film-related resolutions we made for 2023. Next week we'll deliver our regular features, Classics and Recommended, Hidden Gem, The One That Got Away, and the remake Hate Watch. The following week it'll be The Big Conversation, where we talk about a topic from the world of film in more detail. We'll tell you more about that a bit later, and there are more details about all of our features on our various social media channels. If you want to check that out or comment on the podcast, you can find us on Twitter on at Double Real Film. There's also an Instagram account called Double Real Podcast, and a Double Real Podcast Facebook page for you to follow if you're that way inclined. You can also follow us on letterbox.com slash doublereel, where we list all the films we've discussed on the podcast and much more besides. If you like the podcast, we'd also be very grateful if you could leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or whichever platform you use, as it really helps us get the word out to the rest of the world. Now it's time to dim the lights and take your seats for our latest Double Reel Monthly. Hope you enjoy it. Let's get into it. Double Real Monthly is the first part of the episode and gives you a regular digest of news, new releases and how we've been fitting in movie watching with our busy, exciting lives. In the next hour and a bit, you'll get a breakdown of what's going on in the world of film this month that will set you up for your own movie watching. As well as that, at the start of each year, we make some film-related New Year's resolutions, so we'll be discussing the goals we've set for ourselves in 2023. As always, our mission is to give you a great discussion about films and film-related stories that will inspire you to escape the confines of the algorithm and watch something you haven't seen or have been meaning to see for a better cinematic experience. Also, just to quickly mention our other podcasts, which you might like to check out, The Adamson's Verses is where we step away from the world of film and talk about stories, news, and anything else that has caught our attention. Our previous episode, The Adamson's Versus the BBC, is out now, and we're working on a new one, so keep a lookout. With that piece of self-promotion out of the way, let's look at some messages we receive from listeners. <clears throat> Mike, friend of the pod, says, I hate zombie films. I think he's referring back to the zombie feature we did last episode. I would nearly rather watch Baz Luhrmann's Australia. I stress <laughs> nearly. Whoever selects that as a punishment is cruel. That uh, Again, that's uh, we'll be covering that a bit later when we talk about the, sh- the shootout quiz and the uh, the penalty for losing. Was, was that the monk from the Da Vinci Code? You're the one that just whips himself. That's, That's right. What, I'd I'd rather whip myself than watch Australia, to be honest. Yeah, imagine you do a remake of that where the, where the monk is watching like uh, Baz Luhrmann films and like crying well, out in they, pain as he watches them. They did do a little spoof of it, didn't they? It's a little film called Epic Movie. Do you remember? Oh yeah, Epic yeah, 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 yeah. They yeah, got yeah, Kevin yeah. Hart to wait up. <laughs> I remember that now. Jesus, what a time to be alive! <laughs> Absolutely. So, other listener messages. We'll be talking about Gardens of the Galaxy Volume 3 later, and Terry says, saw it last night, thought it was a bit weak, to be honest. Tried too hard to be funny at times and missed the mark a little bit. I'm not really a fan of all the superhero films, but Guardians of the Galaxy so far have been up by the best of the bunch. I did like the Rocket story and the animals' rights themes, 
Uh, the soundtrack was excellent, the best part being the fight scene to Beastie Boys' No Sleep. All in all, though, it didn't quite click for me. Cannon posted on the socials with a more upbeat view. I enjoyed it, but then I loved this franchise, loved the way it made Rocket's backstory the centre of the film, and with all the laughs in action, the two and a half hours just flew by. Another film uh, we'll be talking about, The Three Musketeers' D'Artagnan gets a mention. Scott says, I really enjoyed it, but I've enjoyed most adaptations of the Alexandre Dumas novel. With this being a French film, I didn't think I would recognise anyone, but there are a few known faces in the cast. Probably the best-known one would be Eva Green. I look forward to part two in December. On the same topic, James, a different one, says, I hope Eva Green didn't have to work with any peasant crew on this film, which is a little reference to <laughs> what she thinks of, uh, of some of the staff that she has to deal with. Oh, fucking hell. There's also the film Ghosted to talk about, and Josh says it's essentially the same stereotypical streaming movie, something to put in the background while you do something more worthwhile, and it's a shame <laughs> that's the state of modern film. Uh, Stuart says, just listen to the overrated director's episode. I feel like young James has got a lingering grudge against Scorsese because of what he said about Marvel. Uh, <laughs> that's a slightly tongue-in-cheek response to that episode, I think. Okay, so thank you for all your messages. Uh, we do we do enjoy hearing from you. Um, now, the first thing we do after that on the, the Double Room Month is to talk about the news. We just pick out a few recent stories that have caught our eye. We are recording a little bit before um, publication date, uh, just because of schedules. So th this won't be the up-to-the-minute news, but uh, what recent news stories have caught your eye, mate? Um, did we speak about Jamie Foxx in the April one? I don't remember. Maybe so he's, not. He's been hospitalised with a stroke, and... I was under the impression that he was getting better. Obviously, Jamie Foxx will have access to first-class medical care, I'd assume. But my partner, she sent me something the other day saying it was from NME and that his family are preparing for the worst, which that's, isn't great. That's weird. That's weird. He's a 55-year-old guy who... Yeah, um, that is strange. I mean, we'll obviously have to sort of keep an eye on that because, I mean, there has been... There has been instances, for example, there were stories like, for example, Jeremy Renner's family are preparing for the worst. You get a few things like that. But then on the other hand, um, uh, Tom yeah. Sizemore, Tom Sizemore's family were preparing for the worst and, and they turned out to be uh, to be Correct. for real. Yeah. Um, see, the, the thing I, I saw was his daughter publishing something about him being um, uh, hospitalised with a medical compl complication was all it was called. But, you know, people don't disclose all the information on the... You know, on you know, they try and keep some things private. But then I thought I saw a headline the other day saying he'd been released from hospital. So uh, I don't know. It, like all these things, trying to work out what's going on from uh, reading the news is like trying to work out what time it is from a clock that's only got a second hand. We'll just have to keep, eventually. So this is this is some horrible thing from NME. I've pulled up the article just to reread it, and this is something I missed the first time, and this is why modern journalism is fucking horrible. Who typed this piece of shit? Chris Edwards. It's all click... Fucking horrible it's cunt. It's clickbait, isn't it? So, the title is Jamie Foxx out of hospital... No, 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 this is the wrong one. The title is Jamie Foxx's family preparing for the worst, and... The actual thing that's typed in his article is we're preparing for the worst. So Jamie Foxx is looking like he's okay. Chris Edwards won't be okay if I ever come face to face with him. Yeah, the cunt. Um, but yeah, that's yeah. You get these clickbait articles, don't you? It's sort of like you see. I saw one the other day with it had um, Ian Wright, the uh, footballer turned pundit, um, photoshopped into a photograph of of like uh, a police arrest. 
And and then the headline was uh, Ian Wright didn't think that what he said next on his TV show would change his life in this way. And you think I'm not clicking on that? That's a pile of shit, you know. <laughs> but anyway, something bad has obviously happened because he was kept in hospital for a while. It's obviously fairly serious. It's going to, I think it's going to take its time, isn't it, before we actually find out exactly what's going on? But something has happened to him, and we we do wish him the best. Um, I've got one. Uh, the writer's strike uh, has started. Um, this has been something that's been threatened for a little while. This will be the first writer's strike since like 2007 or eight, So it's been like 14 or 15 years. And it's the usual thing where writers are, despite being one of the most important parts of making a film, one of the worst treated and worst paid in the whole industry, similar to the visual effects people, and they're striking for better conditions. Um, part of the challenge at the moment is that A, everything's gone streaming and there's so much streaming now and it's very difficult to work out how you should get paid or how much you should get paid because of the way streaming works and streamers don't release all that much information about viewership of their programs whereas if you were if you were writing a good you know a traditional film or a traditional television show there would be box office figures and ratings to measure how you've done and measure kind of repeat watchings if repeat fees were part of your of your payment Whereas on the on the streaming side, it, it's not easy to see, and the streamers have been criticised for not kind of um, uh, being transparent and fair. You also have the challenge that media is going through a tough time at the moment, especially since COVID, and they're still waiting for for the figures to recover. So it's not the best time to be asking for a pay rise. Uh, but that's frankly that's happening all over, isn't it? People demanding pay rises um, that they almost certainly need at a time when it's not easy to, to find the money. So I don't know what you've seen on the writer's strike, mate. Um, so I obviously think writers should be getting paid what they deserve because they don't get enough credit. Everyone cares about the lead actors and the director. Nobody gives a shit about anyone else. And the writers are the ones that have come up with this story that we're all enjoying. And it does seem like with every, I think it's the same with the CGI people. They, they don't get paid enough. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, I think with streaming services, I mean, it's it's no surprise to me that people involved in the film industry are being, you know, not as transparent as they should be and haven't been paying what they should be. I mean, and that's not just streamers, is it? That's, that's, that's not just streamers. That's the, just... the, 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 the jokes about Hollywood accountants are decades old, aren't they? Yeah, it's it's the same Hollywood accountants. It's just it's for streaming services. Yeah, yeah. As well as uh, production companies. So. Yeah, um, I'm not surprised. I hope it gets resolved, of course. Yeah, there's also talk that there might be like uh, some pay negotiations with the Directors Guild of America and the Producers Guild of America, and these things tend to go international. Uh, and if they can't make a uh, if they can't make a settlement with them, then Hollywood really does have problems. But the thing is, often people can be writers, directors, and producers at the same time. So these things are quite interconnected. And I listen to a podcast uh, from the Ringer Network called The Town, which is like industry insiders, people who work in the industry and, and like talk to, you know, you, you, the, the host will say, oh, I spoke to like an executive from Warner's the other day, and this is what they said. So there's a lot of inside knowledge there. It It's it's quite complicated, interconnected, and it's going to rumble on. But it's, it's going to go on for at least a few months, and it's going to disrupt you know, film and television production while it goes on. So there it is. Any other news stories um, you saw? Well, there was, um, what was, what was the big one? Am I missing it? Or is this with the one in the last pod? You, you carry on while I try and remember what one I'm thinking of. Uh, there's a couple of quick ones. Uh, Robert De Niro uh, has become a dad again at the age of 79. It's his seventh child. Uh, brave man. Um, mm. 
uh, just you know this the sort of different rules for kind of rich uh rich uh hot stars uh, about how how late they can have kids um but you do wonder how much that kid's going to get to see uh, of their dad Look, there's plenty of older dads these days that's uh, you know it is what it is um there's also something going on with like uh oscar diversity rules i don't know if you've seen this announcement mate no i haven't actually so in order to be uh eligible for wards you need to meet some sort of minimum standards of um uh of diversity on your film so a certain number of your of your crew need to sort of you know you can't it can't be all white men um similarly there need to be sort of some at least some decent roles in the cast for people from like uh you know some sort of what they call underrepresented group um it's similar to um, you know the Bechdel test in, uh, in in filmmaking where they say you know if a film doesn't uh, you know w- w- does a film pass the Bechdel test i.e. does it have two female characters who have names who have a conversation with each other that's not about men right. um, and it's not a high bar to pass but it's surprising how many films don't don't uh, don't pass it it's kind of like there needs to be a significant role in in the movie in the cast for at least one of the following underrepresented groups: women, ethnic minorities, LGBT. Just like, well, you at least need a woman to have a significant part in the film, you know. It, and you won't be considered for Oscars if 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 it's like, I don't know, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross probably wouldn't be considered for an Oscar now because right. it's all because yeah. it's all uh, white men in the uh, in, in the cast. But I mean, you know, if they recast it now, you could easily put, uh, uh, you could easily uh, recast it slightly more diversely in past. You know, one, you know, one supporting, you know, character could be uh, of an ethnic minority group, or, or or a woman could have a like a, a speaking role, and and you've got it. It's not, um, it's not a massive, but they have basically said it's a little bit of a quota system, so it's it's invited some comments. So, to see what I mean? Yeah. So the what I would say is that how do these quotas get met? So I, I don't know if I'm wording this properly, but for example, would Twelve Years a Slave qualify as one of these films because it's got Lupita Nyong'o and Sarah Paulson? Even though Sarah Paulson's, although she's a a big character, she probably has about three minutes worth of dialogue. Well, Twelve, you know Twelve Years a Slave would instantly pass the test because the lead actor is black. You only, you only need oh, that's one. Part of the quota so, basically, you only need one right. off. Basically, if 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 you, if you're if you're um, if your film has a, has a significant role for a black man or any woman, um, then you then you've you've basically met the quota. It's not it's not that hard. It's not a massively high bar, I don't think. So, and I take it does that apply to things like see Dallas Buyers Club? Does that apply because it's got trans and like obviously depictions of homosexuals? Does if, that count? If if so, if if some of the cast and crew members are are LGBT, do you see what I mean? So Jared Leto and Matthew McConaughey aren't that. Right? No, they, they they wouldn't count unless they came out as as one of those groups. If you see, that would be a surprise, wouldn't it? Yeah, that would be a that would be. Um, a, well, more of a surprise for Matthew McConaughey because of his kind of history. I and mean, if Jared Leto came out and said he was a bit bi on the side, you'd go, "Yeah, I could see that." <laughs> right, um, yeah, I don't know how I feel about this because I'm all for more inclusion. I've said it for years that you know films don't get represented enough because. You know, Hollywood is run by old white men who don't watch, you know, the kind of films that should be getting the attention and recognition they deserve. But I don't like the idea that they're just kind of, say, 
see Matthew McConaughey does a film this year and it's got it's him in the lead role and it's Scarlett Johansson opposite him and they do this film about I don't know X Y or Z. It's yeah. a really great film and it's only it doesn't meet the full quota because it's only got one woman and it's got Matthew McConaughey who is a straight white guy from Texas. But yeah. it's the it will be standout best film of the year. So good, wow. Yeah. But it doesn't get nominated because there are t- ten films that are good, some very good films and some excellent films, and they've got two women in lead roles and they've got a black character in a leading role. I think that's dumb. Yeah. And that's not that's not me coming from a place of you know bigotry. I just think, um, I think inclusion is necessary, and it needs to be done in the right way. And I'm all for new ideas and how to get the kind of exposure to these films. But just shoehorning them in isn't really the way to do it, in my opinion. I think this is a yeah. very stupid precedent that they could yeah. set. I, I've got mixed feelings like you because I, I think I think more films should have more people from more backgrounds in them. Yeah, and of course I I think that should happen naturally. Do you know what I mean? People should just yeah. get cast in the films, and people should have more opportunities, and there should be more people from all those backgrounds in the films, making the films, writing the stories, so that when you look across a slate of films, you go, oh, that, if, if if so, you what you want is you want in a couple of years' time someone to publish some figures that say hey, people have really got their shit sorted out. Increasing numbers of people from all sorts of previously underrepresented groups are entering the industry and making some headway. And as a result, look at all these interesting films getting made, you know? Yeah. But you wouldn't want an individual film. Because a film's going to come out, it's about all white guys or all white women just because that's the story. Do you know what I mean? It's like, well, an individual film shouldn't be do you know what I mean it shouldn't an individual like you said I don't think an individual film should be penalized it should because what this really is is about it's about the industry as a whole isn't it you want the industry as a whole to be more representative and if the industry as a whole was representative no one would give a shit if one film was all white guys because it happened to be set on a you know if someone did um someone wanted to do a biographical film about the the, the Shackleton or, or Scott expeditions to Antarctica right everyone on those expeditions was a was a white bloke, right? And it's and it's not that film's fault, so long as the industry as a whole is representing everyone. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but I don't think that's ever going to happen. Because, no, no. Like, see, I remember the kind of turn of the tide was when Battlefield One came out, and it wasn't the first Battlefield, but it was set in World War One. That's why they called it that. And yeah. They had, they had like black um, British soldiers on the front line, and that wasn't a thing. There were some black battalions in the the French armies, and I think that was more World War Two, and they had, you know, women in the front line carrying machine guns, and that didn't happen either, but it was the, so that yeah. females and black people and people of colour playing the game could have yeah. that representation when they were playing. I know it's not a big deal for, like, a, like a video game and anything like that. So it doesn't really matter for a film anyway, because who cares? It's a film. It's not going to change anyone's life, but I think for people getting the recognition they deserve, I think it is important that we don't just say, oh, well, you did a film that's got all these all these tick boxes. However, we have been, I'm going back and forth, they have been criticising Hollywood for years because all, all that really has to happen when someone wants to win an Oscar is that they have to play someone who is a minority and they'll get a nomination and probably a win. They have to play someone yeah. who's a biographical um, person or they have to play someone who has something wrong with them or has, like, you know, 
has all to face all this adversity and it usually involves the Nazis and it's that kind of thing and they win the Oscar. So I'm I'm kind of torn on it. I don't think we should just be making it as a quota because it just makes it seem like it's kind of tokenistic. Like yeah, I I, I don't I don't like the tokenistic element of it. I think the the way I'm looking at it is this: is that there's so many different things going on. Like for example, how do you fix the problem that for example the the predominant type of output that people want from British film is period dramas. Everyone fucking loves British period dramas, yeah, right? Shit. And it's much, much harder to get anything else done. So Riz Ahmed doing a film about uh, like modern urban British crime is a really fucking hard sell because they go, well, if I want to watch urban crime, I'm going to watch something American because it's just more fucking exciting. Or you know? Ray fucking Winstone. Yeah, or, or, or whatever, you know? They say, well, okay, well, we really love working with Riz Ahmed and people only want to do period drama, so let's do a period drama. And they go, yeah, but not a new period drama that happens to mention this interesting story about an Asian guy who was in Victorian England. We want you to remake a fucking Dickens. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so what we'll do is, well, you know, that worked with David Copperfield and Dev Patel. Let's have Riz Ahmed in um, fucking Nicholas Nickleby. Do you know what I mean? And, and you, you get forced down this rabbit hole by this whole range of circumstances when all I want to do is see Riz Ahmed in a film, you know? Uh, so it's like, it's absurd, but the Oscars are absurd. And you know what? This will only be another reason why the film that was obviously the best film didn't win because of some fucking stupid thing. And they have, they've had arbitrary rules for years about music and films, which is why Johnny Greenwood and Daft Punk didn't get nominations, even though they were the fucking best. It's like, what, what I'd say uh, is this. I think it's a bit silly, but I think what... An outcome years from now, if we look back and say, hey, they've scrapped that quota system because they're more diverse now and they don't need to have rules about it, we've probably got a win, you know? Could you imagine, though, that there's a year? I know it's not going to be likely to the amount of films that get churned out, but could you imagine every every film studio like made a film and it just had a white guy and a, a white woman and that was it, that was the cast, that was it. And the only film that year was... A fucking Tyler Perry film, like he does Medea. <laughs> and it wins in all and categories because it it's the only eligible film. Could you imagine? Do <laughs> you know what would be brilliant? Is that if that needs to happen once and then Hollywood goes, oh shit, we need to start taking diversity seriously. What have that. I done? <laughs> yeah. um, just, just to kind of top this off, um, I, I think what we've just tried to do is have like a fairly balanced discussion about that because we're trying to see both sides of the argument. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, there's no, there's no like hate or anything from our end. We're just yeah, trying we're, to understand we're, we're what kind of, the fuck's going on. Yeah, we're kind of saying we agree with you know the, the the effort, the underlying effort to make Hollywood more diverse. We agree with. Uh, we're trying to see both sides of whether this is the right way to do it. Um, do you know what I mean? I, I think people would r r look at what, how we've just discussed it as two people trying to you know trying to trying to be fair and see both sides. Two white guys trying to discuss it. Fuck's yeah. sake! Here we yeah. go again. Yeah. <laughs> Here, however, is someone who. Didn't make as much effort to see both sides of the argument. Do you want to hear about this? Oh, no. Richard Dreyfus says the Oscar diversity rules, uh, quote, make me vomit. Oh, no. Um, he's one syllable from dropping a really offensive term, isn't it? He says yeah. like he's away something, something really... Oh, no. The thing is, he, he he starts getting stuck into it. He goes, no one should be telling me as an artist that I have to give in to the latest, most current idea of what morality is. What are we risking? Are we risking hurting people's feelings? <laughs> you can't legislate that. You have to let life be life and be sorry. I don't think there's... And it's like, I don't think there's a minority majority in the country that has to be catered to. Like, okay. All right. At this point, you're going... I 
to be fair, I, I, I do think quotas are flawed and people only go with quotas because they've struggled to find other ways to solve a problem, right? So someone someone not agreeing with the quota is not completely out of the ordinary. Here's, an, here's the example that Dreyfus decided to give that showed the fatal flaw in having diversity quotas in films. You ready? Oh, dear. Laurence Olivier was the last white actor to play Othello, and he did it in 1965, Dreyfus said, and he did it in blackface, and he played a black man brilliantly. Am I being told that I will never have the chance to play a black man? Uh, what? What? <laughs> Is someone else being told what that if they're not? What are you talking not... about? It's like of all the examples to pick, why that one? That's the what one. What is he talking about? That's the one example that everyone's like, no, 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 no. That's <laughs> the whole world's agreed on that one, mate. What the fuck are you talking about? Oh my goodness! It's just... nobody knows the trouble I've seen. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, it's like, uh, am I being? I mean, just uh, like, you just wonder why you would think that maybe after he said it, he goes, "Oh shit!" It's just like, that's a first draft, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, like Diane Abbott. Yeah, that's right, Richard. You're not going to get the chance to play a black man. I'm afraid. <laughs> Richard Dreyfus <laughs> must be close to fucking eighties. Well, what's he greeting about? Oh, I don't know. He's yeah. It's it's strange. Um, the thing is, right. Some of some of what he says is overstated, um, but I understand where he's coming from. Where he say it's it's patronising to have quotas. That comment, while put put more strongly than I would put it, I can see that, right? Because even though I agree with diversity and I'm I'm not going to lose any sleep over these quotas, I, I I do, you know, part of me thinks you know black people and and minorities have been making some headway in film. Um, one option is to just let them carry on making headway, you know. Absolutely. And, and focus on academy membership and focus on, you know, who's in the boardroom green lighting films, you know. But using the Laurence Olivier in blackface is, well, you wouldn't and be able then to. saying, I want to play a black guy. <laughs> Fucking hell. It's just like. Oh my goodness. Sort of. I, that that really caught my eye. And I, I'm surprised they went with the makes me vomit headline for the story, not that I want to play a black man part of the headline. But yeah. I know, that's, that's the. Oh dear. Sorry, you you were looking for a anyway. You were looking for a, an old an old news story that you wanted to kind of. It was. Uh, the, do you know what was confusing me is that I wasn't sure if I was allowed to talk about the Robert De Niro having a child because we were talking about it when we filmed the feature. So the way we've recorded this podcast is that we've done the monthly roundup after yeah the later reels. And when I was when I was looking on IMDb for um I think it was a someone's name I saw Robert De Niro age seventy nine. I thought he died while we were filming the podcast. Oh yeah, 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 that's right, yeah He yeah. just had his seventh child. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. No, no, no. That's fine. That's fine. Yeah, like, like some films we love and enjoy, where we're, we're, we're recording out of sequence. But yeah, I think we're fine with that, mate. Um, any any other news stories you uh, you picked up on? No, no, I don't think so. No. Yeah, uh, yeah. We, we we don't we don't try and cover all the news here. We just sort of pick a couple of things that that stimulate uh, an interesting discussion. So that's that. Um. We, we like to briefly talk about new films that are coming out. Again, we don't talk about all of them. We just talk about the ones that we think in some way are notable. So what new releases between now and sort of late June when we'll be recording another episode um, have caught your eye, mate? Um, so obviously there's Guardians. I've not seen it yet. I've not had a chance to. Um, yeah. I've been working most weekends. My partner is off weekends, so we don't have time 
we're also trying to save up for a wedding. So yeah. going to the cinema has to be a once in a... Not a blue moon, because obviously I film a podcast, but it's much easier to watch films that we can suggest and say, oh, look, we've got Prime, we've got Disney+, Plus, we've got this, we can watch it this way, as opposed yeah. to trying to catch five new films a month, rather yeah, than yeah. maybe yeah. wait a few. So anyway, I've not seen these films, but that's probably the, the... The big one is Guardians, and Super Mario Bros. is still in the cinema, still making a fuckload of money. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, you know what's funny is that we'll, we'll, we are going to have to come back to this, is that there, there used to be a time when there were tons of great, films for kids and now they seem to be quite few and far between partly i think because disney is releasing quite a few of their sort of animations to streaming and it seems like all right one reason mario's making a lot of money is a lot of people want to go and see it so fair play to them but there are very few other films out for that audience at the moment um yeah i think we are seeing the complete and utter shift of the film industry yeah you know like we kids these days just want to watch YouTube. They just want to stick on Coco Melon or, you know what I mean, that kind of thing. They're just glued to small screens now. I don't think big screens... I think the Super Mario Bros. film is for people like in Japan who still absolutely love Nintendo because it's yeah. still enormous over there. And probably folk my age and maybe close to like my cousin's age who were born in like the, the mid to late and, 80s. And, and played the game. And played like the original Game Boy Color and all that stuff. So, yeah, it's weird... Kids yeah. don't have that much of an option these days. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So I suppose on the one hand, maybe the studios are thinking what you're thinking. They all want to watch YouTube, so let's not spend $200 million gambling that, yeah. they, that we can get them out to the cinema. And yet when someone does put something out, it makes a lot of money. So part part of this is we're still recovering from COVID. We're still not releasing the same number of films we used to release. Uh, I say we as if we work in the industry. Not quite yet. Um, not yet. Um, but yeah, it's uh, we'll just have to keep watching. Um so a couple of things that, that I sort of picked out that are coming out soon. May 26th, the Little Mermaid live action remake comes out uh, as every chance of being a massive car crash. Fucking hell. Everyone man. is basically saying that, that, that the from the latest trailer that this this is going to be the next Cats, that it's going to be an absolute disaster. Well, uh, uh, I, I know there was a, the, all the races kicked off because they got a black person to play a fictional a mermaid. fucking mermaid. <laughs> But <laughs> mermaids are white. Doesn't even realise that. What I, the one thing I saw that thought this is going to be an absolute fucking travesty was um, she can't fucking swim. <laughs> Did you see this? No, no. She can't fucking swim, and they're having to obviously film underwater so it looks real with her hair all floating in the water and all the movements of her arms and shit. She can't fucking swim. Is this, so I think is, all is of it... her, all of her sequences underwater. Well, CGI'd, and I went, that's got to be fucking 90% of a film. Is this, is this she can't swim because they've hired an actor who, who's like not uh, not very capable in the water, or is it she can't swim because she's in a mermaid costume and they didn't No, she can't through? swim. They could CGI a fucking fishtail, yeah. but you'd think one of the prerequisites is that there's going to be moments where you're going to be under the water for maybe 60 seconds at a time, and we need you to be able to swim. No, we, no, yeah, so, we, we need to see some convincing arm action. That fucking casting director needs sacked. Yeah, yeah. I mean, while while I'm not going to sit and listen to someone argue about what colour mermaids should be, mermaids should be able to swim. <laughs> I, I'll I'll live with that. Um, so uh, what else is coming out? Hypnotic is a new thriller with Ben Affleck, directed by Robert Rodriguez. Feels a little bit straight to video that one. If anyone remembers straight to video. Um, June the 2nd, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse comes out. Oof. Now, I did really like the last one. I, um, I enjoyed it. You fucking loved it. I thought it was great. Um, 
I didn't think it was. Did it? I think it won best. Best uh, animated one best film. animated film. Yeah. I and think to be fair, it probably did that year, but I didn't think it was. You know, it didn't blow me away, but it was great. It's yeah. It it's not gonna like transform the fortunes of the MCU because it is a little bit niche, and I think it's good that it's a little bit niche because it plays around with different animation styles and it's got like quite a quirky like humor and the fucking spider pig and stuff. I think it's it's quite good at doing its own thing where it is. Um, so I don't think people should expect uh, this to be you know like a billion a billion dollar movie like all the other MCUs because the last one didn't make that kind of money. But what I'm hoping for is that they do. A similarly decent job that like that did last time so that you can say well at least this spider-man spider-verse animation continues to be good i think that would be nice for that to continue i think there's yeah. a lot of there's a lot of kind of mileage in the story if they get it right uh june the 9th god's petting you it's called it's a british crime comedy about gangsters in brighton it's got alice lowen who i really liked remember we went to see sightseers she was the lead in that um oh yeah um and i june 16th the flash comes out have you seen the tra- any of the trailers for The Flash? No, but it's... I know Michael Keaton's in it. Well, basically, the, the latest trailer was like a Michael... It's a Michael Keaton Batman film in which The Flash makes an appearance, basically. They're, huh. really, they're really downplaying Ezra Miller for obvious reasons. I have to admit, the trailer did look quite good, actually. Um, but with DC, you just never know. Um, a, a, any, other, any other new releases that you're interested in? I think you've kind of picked out like the, the most current films that you're interested in, mate. It's not really a new release, but that air film yeah. about Michael Jordan is already on Disney Plus, I think, or something. Uh, Amazon Prime. Yeah, I know Amazon noticed Prime. That. Yeah, it's, I was like, where? It, yeah, that's funny that because on the one hand, it did it was doing well at the box office. On the other hand, it's getting good reviews, and people are even talking about it. Maybe maybe getting like uh, some 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 awards buzz because because people have really enjoyed it. I went really about a film about the 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 development of a new shoe. Um, but apparently, people are enjoying it. But Amazon have gone yeah, st- stick it into um, stick it into streaming. They've like given it enough of a enough of a go in the cinema, and now it's on streaming. That's Jeffrey Bezos for you, isn't it? Yeah. Have you seen the Bo Burnham song about Jeff Bezos? Uh, yes. Uh, yeah, I think you sent me a clip. I uh, fucking love that shit. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and and June twenty three. I thought you'd be interested to know that uh, Wes Anderson has a new film out called. It. <laughs> it's called Asteroid City, and it contains all the things that you either love or hate about Wes Anderson. Uh, the trailer just goes, "This is a Wes Anderson film through and through." So yeah, those. So th- those are the new films out. What we do next is uh, a feature which we call the Penalty Shootout Film Quiz. Now, we've done this twice. The first time it ended in a draw. The last time, James won. Uh, The way it works is that in the format of a penalty shootout in football, in which we each answer five questions, one in turn, uh, the person who answers the most questions correctly is the winner. Uh, And if you lose, uh, you have to uh, do a forfeit in the form of watching a film that the other person chooses for you, and and probably a film you're not going to like. Uh, when we did the first, uh, uh, when we did the first one, it was uh, my forfeit was going to be Baz Luhrmann's Australia. James's forfeit was going to be Wes Anderson's uh, The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, uh, because I, you know, he figured I would hate Australia. I figured he would hate that Wes Anderson film. Uh, in the event of a draw, no one wins, no one loses, unless we do really badly, in which case we both have to watch our punishment film. Uh, the last time, because James won, I had to watch Baz Luhrmann's Australia, for which I'd like to say thank you very much, mate. 
You're welcome. It was <laughs> what an experience <laughs> that was. <laughs> Fucking hell. So we're going to go again. I'm trying to get some parity. I'm hoping not to have to watch another penalty film. Um, the forfeit I'm going to charge you is still the same one. The Life Aquatic uh-huh. with Steve Sissou. If, if you lose, what, what have you got for me? <clears throat> so, <laughs> sorry. I'm just going <laughs> to. You sound pleased about this. I'm going to pick any Steven Seagal film from after 2010. <laughs> Oh. I haven't quite decided for any you of them. See, when you said any Steven Seagal film, I thought I could watch Hard to Kill again. I don't mind. And then he said after, after 2010. 2010. Oh, <laughs> now Jesus. you're fucked. <laughs> Jesus. Do you Jesus. know what this is like? Steve Aquatics Easy is becoming that snail. Have you seen the snail meme? Yeah. Where you get you get you get to be immortal, or it's like an, a ridiculous amount of money. But there will be a snail that if it touches you, you die instantly. Yeah. And it follows you around the world. <laughs> yeah. And you can't kill the snail. And it's like, do you accept the immortality or the, the $10 trillion with the risk of a snail? Yeah, yeah. It's like because a very slow it, version of it follows. Because if it comes to your door, you're going to have to, you know, you're going to have to go what, across the Atlantic or something. And then you got to wait for it. So yeah. that's what Steve Aquatic is. Bec- the Aquatic like Steve with Steve. I don't know what that fucking film's called. That yeah, shite yeah. is becoming for me. <laughs> following you around. Snail. Following you around. Okay, so... The other thing that, that you came up with, James, an interesting little uh, sort of quirk, is that the right to go first is determined. Well, I was going to say, maybe yeah. maybe, maybe it doesn't matter, cause, but whoever get has, whoever wins this little bit, like the kind of coin toss we're calling it, yeah. gets a lifeline. So say I give you a really hard question and you think, oh, fuck, I'm up against it. I'm 4-3 right. down. And then I have to give you multiple choice or I have to eliminate two answers or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Maybe that. So whoever has okay. the better list has a lifeline, and then that All way right. you might actually get me to watch that shit. Okay. All right. So there's a. What we're going to do is we each we have a little kind of tiebreaker, which we do have well, a little kind of like prelude to the quiz, and whoever does best in this one has earned a lifeline during the quiz. Yeah. And what what this bit is that you have to rank five uh, five things without no, you know, but blind. So if I've got this right, you read them out one at a time and rank them. Um, and the problem is you have to rank the first one not knowing what the next four are, basically. That's right. how it so goes, to save it? spoiling any future lists, I'm going to give the example. Rate these five food items. And I say I say to you, right, donuts first. And then you've got to rate it. And you think, oh, I really like a donut. But what if he says something really good later on? So you put it second. And then I say pizza. And you go, oh, I fucking love pizza. So I'm going to put that first. But then third, I put... IPAs, and then you're like, oh fuck! So it's basically trying to yeah. preempt what I'm gonna yeah, give what's you, gonna be on the list, yeah, and then think, oh, so you might end up putting, yeah, you know, pasta last, even though it's your favorite food. So it's yes. that kind of thing. I get it, I get it, very good. So I've got a list of five. You got a list of five. Who wants yes. to go first? Uh, I'll let you go first. Okay. So what I want you to do is to rank these films. These films were all scored by Hans Zimmer. But I don't um, want I don't want you to rank the Hans Zimmer score. So I don't want you to say which of the scores you think is the best. I want you to rank the quality of the films in which Hans Zimmer's music features. Right. So it could be a great could be a great score, terrible film, for example. Yeah. Yep. So rank these films scored by Hans Zimmer. Dunkirk. I feel like you've put Batman versus Superman in here, so I'm going to put Dunkirk fourth. Interesting. Interesting. You you've come prepared. <laughs> the Dark Knight. One. Easy. Sherlock Holmes. Mm. 
I'll go five. Five, fifth, okay. Twelve Years a Slave. Two. Days of Thunder. Doesn't even have to go three there, does it? <laughs> yeah, that's what's happened. Days of Thunder comes third on your list. Okay. That's not terrible. Not terrible, not terrible. But have you seen Days of Thunder? No, I haven't. It's... <laughs> but it's it, about NASCAR, so I imagine there's some people that like it. it, it it's basically, they did a, they basically remade uh, Top Gun with, uh, with NASCAR instead of Jets. It's got Tom Cruise. If it's got Tom Cruise in it, it's more than likely going to be all right. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. I thought I'd throw you a bit of a bit of a curveball there. I'm right. happy with Dunkirk being under that because I hated Dunkirk. Right there, you go. Not okay. the worst list, right? Okay, all right. What's my list? You have to rank these Pixar films. You ready? Yeah. <laughs> Inside Out. Three. Ooh. Cars three. Five. Ooh. Toy Story two. One. Ooh. Ratatouille. Two. Soul. Four. Oh. So what was your list in the end? Uh, I think it goes Toy Story 2, Ratatouille, Inside Out, Soul, Cars 3. That's a good list. I think you've won that. Yeah, okay. I think you've won that. That's... Yeah. All right. To be, fair, I haven't, so you... uh, to be fair, I haven't seen Soul, so that kind of... <laughs> I was kind of... Mate, kind of I, I started know. watching it last night. It's fucking bananas. I couldn't be bothered with it. Yeah, okay. Um... So okay, you get so, you so get I, a lifeline. I, so I, I, I get a lifeline in the quiz at any point if I if I think I'm struggling. Okay. All right. Uh, so what we do here is we ask each each other five questions in penalty shootout format. Anyone's watched a football match will understand what that is. If if it's level after five, we don't go into sudden death and ask a million questions in case we're here all day. But we'll have a tiebreaker question. And if it's all level after the tiebreaker, then we just call it call it even, and nobody gets a forfeit, right? Yep. Unless we've all been dog shit, in which case we both watch our forfeit. Okay, so the stakes are, James will have to watch The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou if he loses. I will have to watch any Steven Seagal film after 2010 if I lose. Mercifully, most of those films will be quite short. Um, <laughs> so you let... Uh, I'll let you ask your questions first, because you, you, you did... I, I, I sort of did the, the ranking quiz first. So you, you can ask the first question, mate. Right. What substance is Han Solo frozen in during the Empire Strike Back? Strikes Back, sorry. I think it's carbonite. Yes. Okay, so that's one to me. Okay, this is my first question for James. Which of the following actors was not considered, not considered for the role of Michael Corleone in The Godfather before Al Pacino was cast? So you're looking for an actor that wasn't in the running. Robert Redford, Paul Newman, or Dustin Hoffman? No. How was Paul Newman not a bit old for that? Like, am I making that up, or is it just because he passed away and he's actually the same age? Um, Dustin Hoffman doesn't seem right. Like that. That. Uh, 
Like that that can't it can't be Dustin Hoffman. I mean, I know he's a great actor, but and Robert Redford. That can't be. That's that's. I'm gonna I, I'm gonna rule out Dustin Hoffman just because he seemed like he was the right age. Or was, or was he even, was Robert Redford even that big of a star by nineteen seventy two? Yeah, yeah, he was. He was well known like, by then. Yeah. These these are all well known actors at the time. They're all, they're all stars at this. I'm time. just trying to pin like the right age. So, Paul Newman would have been about fifteen years to well fifteen years older than Al Pacino. And probably Dustin Hoffman as well. Surely Paul Newman was fucking ancient. I'm gonna go Paul Newman. Paul Newman is the right answer. Yes. Okay, so that's 1-1. One, one. Now it's time for my second question. Right. <clears throat> you ready? Yeah. I don't, know if you're, I don't know if you're fully ready for that. Yeah, I'm, well, I'm, I'm ready to hear the question. I don't know if I'm ready to get it right until I hear it. Which holiday do Meg Ryan and Billy Crystal celebrate at the end of When Harry Met Sally? Okay, we're digging deep here. Um, so the big American holidays, the ones that get talked about most in their movies, there's obviously there's Christmas and there's Thanksgiving. You don't see many Hollywood films about Easter, although that... Uh, that might be a bit of a red herring. And they often talk about like Labor Day and 4th of July and everything else. The, the the one that came into my head, and I, I might as well just go with my gut because I, 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 I can't honestly remember. So I'm going to have to go with my gut um, and say Thanksgiving. It was New Year's. Oh, shit. Okay, one down, one down. Okay, so I've, I've got one wrong there. It's still 1-1 one, one, and you get, you've got a chance to go ahead here. Question two, which of the following iconic horror directors has had the most remakes made of their films? So this is not the most films remade as in, you know, you know, it's how many remakes have been made of, of their films. So it's not, um, it could be, there could be more than one remake of one film, if you see what I mean. Okay. Uh, George Romero, Wes Craven or John Carpenter? I was going to go for John Carpenter just because there's been that many Halloweens, but then Wes Craven came out of nowhere. I'll just go with what I initially thought before you gave me the options and say John Carpenter. Unfortunately, the answer is George uh, Romero. I didn't know. So in terms of official remakes of their films, um, uh, John Carpenter's had five, uh, uh, Wes Craven's had four, and George Romero's had ten. Part, oh, of the, part, part of the reason for that is that John Carpenter only directed one of the Halloween films. So Halloween 2 is not technically a remake of a John Carpenter-directed film. And with George Romero, this is a bit of a, uh, a weird one, is that the it was a bit of a, the whole thing was a very kind of low-budget bit of amateur production, and the person kind of putting together the film at the end and doing the credits and registering the film forgot to state copyright in the final finished film, which meant that Night of the Living Dead was was uh, never protected by copyright, so anyone could make any any number of remakes if they wanted to. So that's why it was being remade very often. So George Romero's had ten remakes of his films to 
Craven's four and Carpenter's five. So all level after one each, yeah? Uh, after two questions on one yes, each, yeah? Yes, sure. Okay. okay. Question three. How it's, many... It says, it's me to ask you, you funny. Is it? Yeah, oh, you yeah. just asked me about Wes Craven. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> now that makes sense. Yeah, yeah sorry. It's you, to, it's, you, it's you to ask me my, my third question. In this film, eight different ballparks played the role of Oakland Athletic Stadium. You want me to name the film? Name the film. Moneyball? Yes. Okay. Okay. My th- So that's two to me. Uh, you've got your third question to come. In Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy, how many of the villains are actually named characters from the original DC comics? We're not counting Catwoman, and we're not counting like random henchmen, but we are counting mob bosses, any of the kind of the costumed supervillains that appear in them. So, uh, how many so... of those villains are named? And I'm going to give you I'm going to give you options: six, eight, or ten. Six, eight, or ten. So we got Raz Al Ghul, Scarecrow. The Joker, Bane, that's at least four. And then you got Falcone, and you have, who's the other one? Maroney. I think they're all definitely in it. Then you've got Harvey Dent, who's Two Face, which makes it seven. So maybe Maroney doesn't count, and it's only six, or a missing one, and it's eight. So, Batman begins. You have. Are we including the guy that. Kills Batman's parents? Uh, no, no, no. Okay, so because um, he has about right. five different names and five different incarnations of the comics. Okay, so I'm going to say you haven't included Maroney and just go for six. Oh, mate, you were so close. It was eight. What? So, Scarecrow, Ra's yep. Al Ghul, yep. Falcone. Uh, Talia Al Ghul, that fucking Yeah, Talia Al Ghul in the third one. That's the one you missed. And Maroney counts. And Maroney counts. Fuck! Okay, so that's 2-1 to me after three questions. You're asking me my fourth question now. What is the name of the fictional place where Frozen takes place? Ah, okay. Um... Some sort of Nordic sounding thing or Danish thing, but I'm. It's like the one of the first things they say in the film, and if you've yeah. not caught it, you've not caught it. Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna have to use my lifeline here because I'm I'm totally dead without it. Cool. Right. I will now need to find other places from <laughs> the Disney animated universe. So are you going some... to give me a choice of three? Okay. Yes, yeah, 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 I need yeah, to go find. Yeah, yeah, take, yeah, take, take so. your time, wait. So, you ready? Yep. Is it Hillerod, Alborg, or Arendelle? I'm going to say Alborg. Oh, it's Arendelle. Oh, <laughs> shit. Okay. So, that's uh, that was my fourth question, wasn't it? 
and I've yes, got, so I've and I've got, got, and I've got two right and you've got one right, and this is now your yeah. fourth. So this is for you to pull level after four questions. Which of the following women has received the most Oscar nominations? These are all acting nominations, supporting actress and, and, and lead actress. So it's any nomination for an Oscar for their acting. And the options are Jessica Chastain, Michelle Williams or Viola Davis. Oh, fucking hell. Now, is Michelle Williams one of those ones who's just been nominated loads and Jessica Chastain's only been nominated twice? Or isn't Jessica Chastain must have been nominated for Zero Dark Thirty and one for The Secret Life of Tammy Faye. Did she get nominated for The Help? So that's three. Um, I don't really know the films of Michelle Williams. I know she's been nominated, but I couldn't even tell you what for. So... Do I think she's got more or less than three? She's probably she was probably nominated back in like two thousand and six. I know she was in Brokeback, so I imagine she got nominated for that. And she played Marilyn Monroe, so I imagine she got nominated for that. So that's at least two. And and I think she got nominated pretty recently, so I think she'll have. I'm going to guess that she has more than Jessica Chastain. And Viola Davis has definitely got nominated for the help. She won for Fences. And then she was in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. So that's three. So Jessica Chastain's on three. At least. Viola Davis is on three at least. I think Michelle Williams is going to be this one here. I think she's like an Amy Adams. I think she'll have four. Or at least four. So she's got more than the other two. The correct answer is Michelle Williams. <sighs> yeah. So you draw a level at two all. Yeah, so uh, Chastain's got three. Viola Davis has got four. Michelle Williams has got five. Fantastic. Okay, so it's two each after four questions. I know we're not scoring high, but I think there's some high quality quizzing going on here and some tough questions. Uh, so what's my fifth and, well, final question, unless we need to go to the tiebreaker? Your fifth. And final question will be a multiple choice question. Okay. Well, I'm hoping that it's going to be quite a difficult one. So that's why that's why you're getting multiple choice. Will, will I regret wasting my um, potentially uh, lifeline? Yeah. Because with that question, I had to give you more options. Yeah. Whereas this one, you could have gone right. Take away two options. Yeah. So your final question is. Are you ready? Yeah. Just building the tension. Building the tension. The code in the matrix comes from what food recipes? So it's obviously binary, yeah. ones and zeros. And the Wachowskis took that and took something, took recipes of these following four foods, and that's what they basically converted and translated into binary code. Is it A? Dumplings, B, sushi, C, pad thai, or D, stir fry. Give me those options again. I can't remember what I said them in initially. Dumpl- was it dumplings, sushi, pad thai, and stir fry? Stir fry, yep. <clears throat> so obviously, I don't know this, so it is going to be a guess. But can I can I talk myself into the answer, working something out? 
the there's a lot of there's a lot of numbers go up on that screen and I guess what's got the most in it like stir fry's got maybe lots of ingredients so is pad thai um I guess the question what was big I mean all of them I suppose Americans loved their takeout food in the late 90s I'm going to say stir fry it is sushi oh! okay so you can win this with your final with your final answer here mate right Question five. Which of the following directors was the first to direct a feature film? So, you know, full length film that got, you know, it was, you know, an hour and a half plus long and got released and all of that stuff. There's no trick questions like one of them directed a film that never saw the light of day or anything like that. It's just three directors. When did their directing careers start first? And the options are Ron Howard, the Coen brothers, or James Cameron. Oh, now I know James Cameron was born in the forties, and that gives him a bit of an edge over Ron Howard, who I think was born in the early fifties, and I think the Cones are a little bit after that, like maybe fifty-seven, fifty-eight, like nineteen fifty-seven, fifty-eight. Hmm. But I know James Cameron. I don't know why, but I feel like Ron Howard was just doing a lot of TV stuff before. So I'm just going to go with James Cameron. First of those three to direct a feature film was Ron Howard. <gasps> oh, the Coen so Brothers are the most... The, the, yeah, the, 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 the most recent of those are the Coen Brothers. His first film was in 1984. James Cameron directed Piranha 2 in like 1982. And Ron Howard actually directed a film in the mid-70s when he was still quite young because Roger Corman gave him a shot um, directing a, a like a B movie called like Speed Demons or something like that. Um, so it was Ron Howard by about seven or eight years. Okay, so we're, we're in the tiebreaker. You have to ask me a tiebreaker question. I have to ask a tiebreaker question. If it's level after this, then honors even. Okay, right, fair enough. What was the top grossing movie of two thousand and fourteen? Top grossing movie of 2014. Okay, so Nolan had Interstellar out, but that didn't like break, <coughs> didn't break the billions or anything like that. Because well, he was... also it came out in November. I'll give you one little clue. It came out in November, so only had yeah, a month and a half to yeah, make so it. So it won't have been that. Now, the first Avengers film was 2014. Did the second, did Age of Ultron come out by that time? That was 2014, the big films. It's pre-Black Panther. I think Iron Man 2 is already 2010. Mm. I'm guessing here, I'm struggling a little bit, but I'm going to say just to... Got to do something... Captain America, the first Avenger. So you're, there's a Captain America film that year, but it was the Winter Soldier. The oh, first Avenger was 2010. Shit. shit. But Captain America, the Winter Soldier is about 10th on this list. The highest grossing film is Transformers, Age of Extinction. Oh, I would never have got that in a million years. By nearly 200 million ahead of The Hobbit. Jesus. Okay. All right. So you can win this with this tiebreaker question. 
Which of the following women appear on the list of 20 biggest pay deals of all time for a single film? So this isn't like um, uh, like some multi-picture deal or anything like that, or like the you know total gross for being in a franchise. One film, one pay deal, yeah? Right. And the options are, and it's the, there was a list that came out of the tw- 20 biggest kind of overall fees. And the options are Julia Roberts, Jennifer Lawrence, Cameron Diaz. I took Scarlett Johansson off the list because the actual amount of money that she ended up getting paid for Black Widow was like never like formally announced. So it's out of those three, Julia Roberts, Jennifer Lawrence, Cameron Diaz, which of those three appear on the list of 20 biggest pay deals? One of them does, the other two don't. I'm going to go for Jennifer Lawrence because she kicked up a real big fuss um, about the pay back in 2014. And I'm just going to say that after that, or I think in that same year, I think someone poked fun, maybe it was Ricky Gervais, she got paid $25 million for one film that year. And I'm, I imagine that Although Robert Downey Jr. probably gets paid a hundred million per film, it's probably one of the highest fees a woman's been paid. Believe it or not, the uh, the answer is actually uh, Cameron Diaz. Oh fucking for what? Bad teacher. Really? So what happened was, uh, give me the circumstances of this. She got forty million dollars for her involvement in Bad Te- Teacher. Because the the way the deal worked is that there was some stuff going on at the back end that nobody thought would would come off. So she was paid a million dollars to actually be in the film to get it produced and down at a budget. But she but in return for a big slice of the profits of the film, and it ended up doing an absolutely stunning amount of business. It made two hundred and sixteen million dollars worldwide, and no one realised it was going to make that much because R-rated comedies don't always make that kind of money. Um, so she made a $40 million total kind of uh, pay deal on that. Fucking hell. Well, I was never going to get that. Yeah. So obviously, we're, we're both very keen to not watch the films that are being handed out as punishments. That ends even. No forfeit. I, I think we both played well there. Um, I think even though we got two out of five, the questions, like the standard was Yeah, the standard was quite high. high. Some near misses and stuff. I think that's like a really kind of entertaining 1-1 one, one draw we've just just uh, been through there. So, okay, thank you very much. Well, well played, mate. We'll, we'll oh, con- that was tense. We'll and continue the snail that. trail of the aquatic life seems <laughs> to continues like, to follow me. It's like it follows with a Wes Anderson film following you around. <laughs> so having done that we uh we talk about films that we've watched this month particularly new films what have what have you watched lately mate um i watched this film uh it's not a new film but it's called pride you know um, the film about the miner strike back in two thousand and fourteen. Yeah, yeah, I've got it on Blu-ray. Yeah, it's a good film. Um, yeah, watch that. It was quite sad towards the end. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was a funny film, very well written. Um, a very British film. Yes, um, it's sort of in the same tradition as things like Brassed Off and um, more Brassed Off than the Full Monty because the Full Monty's generally got a much lighter tone, but Brassed Off has got that similar sort of adversity and and sort of quirky Britishness, isn't it? Yeah, it was a, it was a good it was a good laugh. Uh, mm-hmm. I watched Baby Driver again. Yeah, not a new film, but watched it again. Um, 
what else? Uh, I watched Star Wars Revenge of the Sith again because there was a, a new Star Wars game that came out last month, um, which takes place around 10 years after Order 66, so I thought I'd just give that a little watch just for a little little context. How, how, um, how, does that, how does that play out now? Oh, I love it. I think the prequels are really underappreciated. Um, although what I would say is that if you want to appreciate the prequels a little bit more, you have to watch the animated Clone Wars series because that's yeah. just superb. I don't know if you've ever watched it. It's fucking what, I've watched bits, but yeah. Um, it's I, I, so good. I have to say, I think Sith is is definitely the best of the three. And I think there are bits in it like the the you know the final battle and the you know the, the, that final speech by um by Ewan McGregor like I really loved you I thought you were gonna I thought you were the one and all that sort of thing was was really good. It still had a lot of things that really annoyed me. There's a bit where um, Natalie Portman like they hear something and she goes Anakin I'm scared. And you think hold on this one used to be the queen of a fucking planet right? Is that all she's got to say? And and I, I still can't get away with fucking. Um, Hayden Christensen, and you know, I didn't, I, I didn't find him being persuaded to kill the the kids because he had a nightmare, particularly convincing. But I, I, I will say, I, I do think I remember going to see that one and thinking, okay, well, th- this one is it's a huge step up from Attack of the Clones, which is extremely poor. Yeah, I think what I've appreciated more is that watching the animated series, you see the they've developed that relationship between yeah Anakin and the Chancellor. And they developed Padme as well. They've just basically done, they've kind of gone back and thought, fuck, we, we didn't really do enough. So here's yeah. lots and lots of things to kind of make up for it. So I think I just appreciate it. Well, it doesn't excuse the fact that they didn't do that in the films initially and the, yeah. the films were rushed and the script was rushed and just the story didn't have enough depth to it. But, but I mean, the, the underlying story structure is definitely better than the story structure of uh, of episode seven, eight, and nine. It, there is an arc, you know, the, the, the downfall of, of, of Anakin Skywalker is, is a. Is a stronger arc than the the, the cobbled together stuff they did for the most recent films. That's for sure. Yeah. So I watched that. Um, what else? Um, I don't think I did. I watch anything else. I'm just trying to scan through all of my things to try and jog my memory a little bit. What, what, go- while you jog your memory, I'll talk about a couple of things I saw. Um, I went to the cinema to see the new uh, version of the Three Musketeers, the Three Musketeers D'Artagnan. Right. Um, absolutely loved it. Oh, good. Um, I found out when I was kind of looking this up, this is actually the first time in over 50 years that the French have done a major film of this story. Wow. Which, which, given it's like one of the sort of ultimate kind of French adventure stories, that, that is slightly surprising to hear. Uh, Vincent Cassel plays Athos, slightly older Athos than you normally get in the films, uh, but he's very good. Eva Green is my lady, probably the most recognisable you know person in the film. She's brilliant. The rest of the cast are French actors I haven't heard of, but they're all really well cast. Um, you know, we talked about Three Musketeers recently. We did the nineteen ninety three version, where we said actually this is the sort of thing that can be remade because each generation has its own version of this story, um, and it's just a question of whether they do it well or not. And this just does it absolutely fucking spot on. It does it does the same thing as the seventies versions I talked about, that it's taken the first half of the book to make one film, it's doing the second half of the book in a second film coming out later in the year. Uh, that's gonna be called Three Musketeers Milady. Um the tone and the style of the film is very different from anything we've seen before. Uh, the action is beefed up a lot more because it's a it's it's a it's a modern day blockbuster. Do you know what I mean? It does have to like meet certain standards in that respect. Um it's more sort of serious in tone and style than the seventies version, but it's still got that kind of you know, swashbuckling like touch to it. It 
gets the tone really spot on. It really does a nice a nice job. Um, everything works the way it should. Um, the, the, the 70s version, which I really like, um, they filmed it in Spain to save money. There's no French locations. There's no French landscape. This has got French landscape, French weather, you know, uh, you know, French sort of horizons as they, as they sort of gallop through the countryside. The original palaces and stuff, it looks amazing. It's got great action. Eva Green's absolutely brilliant as the villain. I'm really looking forward to seeing her in the second half because Milady gets more screen time in the second half. Um, the action is really good. When you're considering how old-fashioned this all is, this is sword fights and people on horseback and stuff. And it's, you know, uh, there's a, an amazing horseback chase along a clifftop between two people kind of battling each other. Um, and in an era where Tom Cruise can literally drive a train off a cliff, I think it takes a lot of skill to make a much more old-fashioned action sequence like that work. And when you, you remember we watched that most recent version of Robin Hood with Tara Edgerton and they tried to beef up the action and so are they, are they in the Gulf War? Do you know what I mean? It was so like, the, the, the balance was so off. This is true to the time, but yet right for a, a 21st century audience. Absolutely excellent. One of my favourite films so far this year. Fucking loved it. Can't wait for the second half. Um, did that give you time to check and see what, what else you watched uh, recently, mate? Yeah, I haven't watched much else. All right, no, nothing. So. Very good. Um, I watched a couple of other film, uh, other things. A couple of um, uh, things watched sort of streaming, basically. Ghosted, that someone wrote in about one of the listeners. Uh, it's pants. It looks shit. Basically, it's exactly like all these other things where they've basically made... Do you, do you remember when they used to do straight-to-video or straight-to-cable films, right? And at least they would like. At least they didn't cost much. At least they didn't last long. And some of them could be quite fun. They're like they're like the modern day version of the B movie. These straight to streaming films look like they cost two hundred and fifty million dollars, but there's absolutely nothing decent in them. It's just in one ear out the other. It's got like a. It's like an action rom com, right? Um, Anna Diarmas and Chris Evans meet and seem to quite you know like each other and get romantically involved for a couple of days, and then uh, she ghosts him. Hence the title. He's been ghosted. And then he's inadvertently left a tracking device somewhere about a person, as you do. It's not even worth going into how that's a thing in the plot. They make it seem innocent, and yet he just put tracking devices and all this stuff, which is really weird. He follows her to London, which is kind of creepy, and gets caught up in a web of violence and intrigue because she's actually a super spy. So Anna Diarmas is the spy, and Chris Evans is the regular bloke. He gets caught up, and they go on the run together, and... Ugh. It's absolutely paint by the numbers. The only Nobody thing, cares. the only thing you remotely kind of notice is there's loads of actors from Marvel in it. Loads of actors from the MCU just pop up for cameos. Um, Sebastian Stan, who was the uh, the witness oh. soldier, I think Don Cheadle's in it for about two seconds. It would have been even more so because originally the Anna Diarmas part was going to play by Scarlett Johansson. It's absolutely in one ear and out the other. It's directed by Dexter Fletcher, but you could you couldn't tell because it's got literally no personal directorial touches in it. The whole thing is just seems to be a contractual exercise for everyone involved. Um, in one ear and out the other. Um, a rather better streaming film I watched though was the Boston Strangler. This was straight. Okay. This is straight to streaming, but this feels like a real film. And what this is, this is about two women who were journalists in the sixties in Boston, sixties and seventies, who broke the story of the Boston Strangler. He was a serial killer who was um, uh, attacking women on their own, like posing as like, "Hey, I'm I'm the plumber." The um, uh, the what the what's the name the 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 the, the, the I don't know the janitor the the, the whatever, whatever they call it in America the guy who runs the building has told me you got a problem with your pipes I'm here to fix the pipes he goes in kills the women uh, leaves a uh, like a, a stocking or a pair of tights around their neck tied up as his little signature he's known as the Boston Strangler 
Um, so these women actually investigated the case. They highlighted what a poor job the police were doing of the actual investigation, not getting any leads. Um, you know, women in journalism at that time not exactly it's not exactly supporting a supportive environment for them to work in. And they're also roaming around the city at night pursuing stories about a serial killer who's looking for exactly them to murder. So there's quite a lot going on. Kira Knightley plays one of the journalists. Carrie Coon plays the other one. She played um, Ben Affleck's sister in Gone Girl. Um, okay. And it was good. Uh, it brings some new information to light, which I wasn't aware of. It's not like I'm an expert on this story, though. Um, basically, it, it's possible that the guy they got for this, Albert DeSalvo, was not... He maybe committed one of the 13 murders they attributed to the Boston Strangler, but he probably didn't commit all of them which means there may have been several stranglers, copycats, and various other things going on. Anything more than that would be a spoiler for the film. But it's decent. It's a little bit low-key, and the story doesn't quite leap off the screen, and it suffers by comparison to Zodiac, which was a similar kind of ongoing quest for the serial killer story. And any of the great kind of films about a pair of journalists cracking the case, like it's not quite up there with Spotlight, which was about Boston. But it's decent and it's it's worth a watch. It's well acted, especially Carrie Coon was excellent. But, but everyone's good. Uh, it's a decent watch, that. Um, I watched Guillermo del Toro's uh, Pinocchio. All right. Uh, it's exactly what you'd expect. It's a visually impressive dark fairy tale because it's Guillermo del Toro. If you're in, you're in. If you're not, you're not. I like that sort of thing, so I enjoyed it, but it's not going to convert anyone who are like unconvinced by Del Toro's style. But it was good. It, it's a very different kind of look to the you know the whole Pinocchio and everything, and you know the the parallels with Italian fascism. I think worked quite well. Yeah, it's good. I uh, enjoyed it. Uh, and finally, I I went to the cinema like relatively hot off the presses to see Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three. Okay, hit me with it. So. This is James Gunn's last act as the director of the MCU films, right? Because he's gone off to be the head of DC, basically. Uh, if you remember, that they, they he got fired from his role in the MCU after people found some old tweets where he made a couple of like, like uh, off-color jokes. Um, not enough to get permanently cancelled, and I think it was just because the right wing were like getting stuck in a bit that he got fired, reinstated eventually, but it did delay this film coming out. Um, so this film should maybe have come out a little bit sooner, but it's come out now at a time when people are going, oh, the MCU really need a hit, right? Because Ant-Man Quantumania didn't do very well and all that sort of thing. People are saying this is a bit of a no-win situation for Marvel, actually, because if it, if this film is bad or doesn't do very well at the box office, it's like the continuing decline, right? But if it's good and it does well, people will be going, oh, well, that's tough. It's the only thing that's been any good lately, and the person who made it has gone off to the competition, you know? So it doesn't answer the question of whether what the future of the MCU is. Do you know what I mean? Whether it's yeah. good or bad. Um, it's different from the other two films. It's two and a half hours long. It's darker and more somber in tone. Uh, James Gunn's gone for a lot more physical sets this time. If you remember Guardians of the Galaxy 2, it's looked up just, I think the whole thing was done in front of a green screen. Right, There's a lot of gloopy CGI in that. Um, they do have the humorous knockabout stuff, but it's it's overall more serious. It makes Rocket more central to the story. But making him more central to the story, the way they do that kind of separates him from the rest of the team for large parts of the film. Uh, so you may or may not like that because obviously part of the attraction of this film is the ensemble of all the actors together, the characters together. And in this, Rocket is separated a little bit. I don't want to spoil it. It's got themes about animal rights and animal experimentation because we get Rocket's backstory and how he turned out the way he did. Um, I did like it. The tone's a bit all over the place. Uh, it's sort of... It seems like they've taken two films or two stories that I like a lot and jammed them together into one film I don't like quite as much. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like one, each story slightly undermines the other one 
there's a more somber story in there which is slightly undermined by some of the knockabout stuff it is good though it's much better than the other recent mcu films um i did laugh when i was meant to i felt the motion when i was meant to the stakes and the villain were proportional to the characters in the film and the setting of the film which often is like oh it's another big bad destroying a planet Do you know what i mean it's like actually this is all proportionate but not too low-key um will Poulter's character does feel a bit crowbarred in but otherwise it's good i liked it it, it even if James Gunn was staying, this doesn't answer the question about whether the MCU has kind of turned a corner because it's good, but overall, it's still I'm wondering where the MCU is going to go after this. But it, it was good. I mean, I mean, some people have really loved it more than me. Um, I just found a little bit like there's a lot of more serious stuff which doesn't. I don't think it should be all light, and there is like trauma and pain in the old ones. Like the starting point of the first film is, you know. Uh, Chris Pratt's character loses his mum, right? So there's always been some, you know, darkness and pain in it. But I did I, tonally, it was a bit off. Otherwise, it was very good. Um, so yeah, overall, I liked it. I mean, I, I think um, the MCU still needs to start making more good films. This isn't going to fix things on its own. But yeah, that's everything I've watched. Good stuff. What we now do, um, this is kind of the closing sort of climax to Double Real Monthly, is we talk about our resolutions for the year. Uh, we each made, or or in, in one case had made for us resolutions for the year, in which we sort of have a bit of a 12-month project. Now, James, your 12-month project is each month you're going to watch a Nick Cage film picked at random. Yes, uh, I And am. you've uh, watched some rather kind of... Uh, varied ones. You've got Lord of War, which is far more in the more credible, decent cage canon. You've also watched some absolute nonsense. But uh, what 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 did you get? Uh, what what got spat out from the randomizer this time? I got the unbeatable weight of massive talent. Oh right, okay. So I think you'd already seen this before, but yes. you watched it again, yeah? Yes. Yeah, so I, I watched it. Well, to be fair, I watched it last month. So I watched it in April, and this is May. So I didn't really need to watch it again. And I'd already given you my kind of private review of it when I said, oh, by the way, I've, I've caught uh, the unbearable weight of massive talent. So, yeah, it's absolutely mental. However, I do feel like the best part of this film isn't Nicolas Cage. It's Pedro Pascal. Yeah, I love Pedro Pascal. Pedro Pascal is just the boy. He's just great. I love him. Um, and, yeah, um, it's absolutely bonkers. It's daft. The best bit in the film is when they all do mushrooms. Or some yeah. sort of hallucinogenic. And yeah, it's got some really good beats. Um, but all the, 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 the show is stolen by Pedro Pascal. There's no two ways about it. Um, yeah, it's if you're looking for a film with a plot or acting and all that stuff, don't bother. Yeah, it's, it's quite completely it's, nonsense. It's, it's it's quite meta. It's kind of everyone's having a little bit of fun with the whole Nick Cage phenomenon, really. And if that's if that's what you're in the mood for, it does have some good fun stuff going on. But like you say, it doesn't um, it it doesn't really stand on its own. You have to have watched a bunch of other Nick Cage films for, for in the first instance, and this is kind of a riff on that rather than a film that stands on its own, isn't it? Yeah, it's got um, Tiffany Haddish and Ike Badenholtz, who I also enjoyed in kind of smaller. Yeah supporting roles and they're just there to kind of be funny and yeah. they are funny um but yeah the story is weak um it's not it's nothing to do with the story it's just the, the kind of novelty of seeing nick cage play nick cage 
and and, just, and, um, and his own crazy invisible friend, which I enjoyed. Yeah, uh, who's uh, is that? Not one of his former roles. I can't remember the film it's from. But kind, it was a film. kind of it's, a, it's it's sort of a it's a bit of a merge of several. It's a bit of a merge of him in Wild at Heart, a bit of him in a little bit of the I'm a Vampire stuff, and also I'm some of his and some of his kind of uh, slightly offbeat TV appearances. Uh, yeah, so there's a few things going on there. Um, but yeah, very good fun. Stupid uh, would be the the way I would describe it, but it's great fun if you're just thinking, right? Do I what? Do I watch watch a film with a pizza in front of me and just see where things go? That's basically it. Okay, and that's that's the film I would reckon. Yeah, I mean the the fact that it more or less held up on a second viewing is fairly good as well, isn't it? Yeah. So the other thing I wanted to I wanted to mention on this is that what we've been we we haven't quite agreed what. Because um, I sort of give my projects a name, don't I? Like this is mine's called the Cronenberg Institute. I had the Year of the Carpenter, I had the Kubrick Odyssey. We didn't really have a name for this, so what I did was I threw this onto the socials. A few sort of people who kind of follow this, I, I said, yeah, "What do you, what do you think of this?" And I, I got some answers about our possible names for this. Some of the ones that we were talking about were Cage Concern, Glass Cage of Emotion, Cage of Extinction, Cage Cage Against the Dying of the Light, Cage Sex Location. Uh, legal cage of consent, <laughs> cage heat, cage limit. Um, so what did we got? Uh, people, a couple of people threw out their own uh, options. Cage before beauty was one of them. Um, uh, legal cage of consent got some support. I have to say, um, <laughs> cage sex location. Someone said it's good, but perhaps a, ge- a bit generationally niche because it's like from a from the internet a long time ago. Um, Glass cage of emotion is also supported. Someone came up with a very niche one: narrow cage railway, <laughs> which I think is is funny in the context of the conversation, but I don't think works as a title to this. Well, Chap- the only guy that gets that one is that mad Francis. What's yeah, his yeah. name? The Francis guy who puts a camera on his head and looks at trees. Yeah. Have you seen that guy? Yeah. Yeah, and another one which is again even more niche and even more out of date. Someone said cage of Gugu. Because there was used to be a band called Kajigugu. Again, you have to be fifty for that even to make sense. So, um, and someone else said the Cage of Innocence, but I think um, uh, Legal Cage of Consent got oh, a fair bit of support. <laughs> or, or um, what was the other one? Glass Cage of Emotion. I think those are the two like most favourites. So you can pick one of those two if you want to give your. I will. A name. I will toss a coin. Okay, and and we'll come up with. Well, we'll just put one say Legal Cage of Consent. Well, tell it, tell it, tell us next month what you decide. Oh, in suspense! It'll be fucking June by the time we have a title for this thing <laughs> for this twelve-month project. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Okay, so my my resolution uh, was to do a twelve-month project of David Cronenberg films, which I'm calling the Cronenberg Institute. Each month, we pay a visit to the shadowy Cronenberg Institute, uh, a a center of strange films which mess with your mind. Um, I've the last one we did was uh, I'm, 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 I've been doing in chrono- chronological order the Cronenberg films I haven't seen. I haven't seen a full years. There isn't tw- a full years worth of, uh, of Cronenberg films I haven't seen. So we are going to run out. And at the end of the year, I'm going to do three of my favourites or three of I think the most kind of emblematic Cronenberg films. But I'm still sort of filling in the gaps here a little bit. The last one I did was 1993's M Butterfly, 
which was a, a departure for Cronenberg. It's really unlike any of the other films that he's done. The rest of the 90s, he spent a little bit more in sort of typical Cronenberg territory. He did, in 1996, he did his version of J.G. Uh, Ballard's Crash, which was hugely controversial. And it wasn't a typical body horror Cronenberg film, but it was definitely controversial and focused on a lot of really strange shit, banned in a lot of places. He then did Existence, which he talked about for the pod, which is, you know, sci-fi weirdness. It's somewhere between sort of naked lunch and scanners. So, you know, very much within his wheelhouse. And then in 2002, he does something which I think is, I think it is very much a Cronenberg film because of what it deals with and how it films it. But I think the subject matter is a little bit different to the Cronenberg stuff we had before. This is from 2002. It's called Spider. And Spider was a film starring Rafe Fiennes based on a novel by a guy called Patrick McGrath. Patrick McGrath grew up, his dad was like one of the, maybe not the, maybe not the, the governor, but, but a senior person in Broadmoor dealing with like the, you know, criminally insane. And when he grew up, Patrick McGrath emigrated, but found himself working in, in institutions for the, for the mentally ill. And this film Spider is about a guy played by Ray Fiennes, his nickname is Spider, who has been committed to an institution for decades and he's just got out. It looks more or less present day. It could be a little bit in the past. It's set in London. Um, so this could be London in like the 90s, call it that. Um, and he's been institutionalised for about 20 years. He's He's got out, but he's clearly still a bit fragile, still a bit traumatised. And they put him in a halfway house for people in a similar position to him. And some people you think are in this halfway house just till they get on their feet and will maybe move on. There's at least one guy there, played by John Neville, who played Baron Munchausen in the film we, uh, the Terry Gilliam film we discussed uh, in a previous episode. Yeah, he plays an old psychiatric patient who's never left. He's been there all his life, so they might as well have left him in the institution. Do you know what I mean? But now he's at least he's got his own room and he's not been locked up or anything, you know. But he's clearly he's he's never getting he's never going out to a normal life, you know. So it's that kind of group of people. It's all basically you know men who have, you know got out of you know from you know from being institutionalized but they're still struggling a little bit with their mental health and they find a bit of work for them all that sort of thing but Ray Fiennes' character has a lot of sort of time on his hands which he spends going back to the sort of deprived area of London that he grew up in revisiting those places and remembering and reliving events from his childhood which led to his trauma and him being institutionalized so he's basically reliving the things that led to his the episodes that caused him to, to you know, break down and need to be put in an institution. Um, his parents are played by Gabriel Byrne and Miranda Richardson, and we see them in flashback. We see him, mem- and it's really beautifully done because what happens is, is that he's standing, he's looking through a window, and you then see what he's looking at through the window, and it's a scene, and partly you know it's a flashback because it's clearly kind of thirty years ago or something, yeah. But Ray Fiennes isn't in the in the, the the scene. A child is, but you know that Ray Fiennes is remembering something and reliving it because what he does is he'll say something to himself, looking through the window, and then somebody in the room says the thing he's just said, and that that like clues you into the fact that he's remembering something that he that he lived through years and years ago. And what it tells you the story of is him like struggling with the relationship with his dad. He's very close to his mother, and then his dad gets taken up with a, a woman who you know who's seeing on the side and uh to show you that this is the the faulty memory of a of a, a, a man who's still struggling with mental illness and therefore is something of a, an unreliable narrator 
Um, Miranda Richardson plays the other woman as well. She plays like a trashy platinum blonde version of his much more kind of traditional looking mum. So Miranda Richardson's in a dual role and it's... It, it could be confusing, except Cronenberg films it so well that you follow what's going on. So in these flashbacks, you see him, like, he finds out or he sees his dad with another woman. He hates the fact that she's with another woman. His dad beats him and he's struggling with the whole thing. Um, and he... Um, uh, what led to his kind of struggle, which I'm not going to spoil the plot, unfolds. Um, it's quite low-key... It's a little bit depressing because it's you know quite sad lives of people, but it deals with the mental health issues of the people involved with a lot of compassion, and it's beautifully filmed. Um, it's 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 minor key Cronenberg, but it's really good, and it kind of uh, it kind of shows a lot uh, um, a lot of Cronenberg's skill outside of kind of the body horror stuff. So yeah, definitely worth a watch. Good cast: Gabriel Burns, good Miranda Richardson's great, Lynn Redgrave's in it as well. So very good film. Didn't do very well at the box office at the time. I think this was a bit of a hard sell. But uh, Cronenberg filming in London is something that he came back to do um, for the film I'm going to be doing uh, next month, which is Eastern Promises, um, which is a very different style of film. But uh, yeah, Cronenberg starts to explore different stuff in, in the 2000s. And uh, yeah, I'm, I enjoyed this. I still prefer his body horror because that's my era. But um, he started to show some you know r real kind of variety to his skills there. And, and that was... Uh, this latest institute to uh, Cronenberg Institute visit. Fantastic. So that covers all the things that we normally do in the double real monthly. Was there anything else that you wanted to uh, tell our lovely audience about mate before we go? I mean, I completely forgot to say that I watched Matilda, the, ah. the, but I'll save that for next pod just to keep them, was that, keep them coming back. Was that the, the old Matilda with Danny DeVito or the new, no, the, uh, new the new one. The new one. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, you want to cover that next time? Yeah. And then I think by next month we will have another Adamson's versus it. I think it's yeah, you know, we'll, we'll, probably we'll, out by that point. Yeah, we'll find time for that. That's all for the latest edition of Double Real Monthly. Thanks for listening. Thanks also to my co-host James Adamson. The music was Mistake the Gateway by Kevin McLeod. Next week we'll be back with our regular features. First up will be our classics and recommended feature where we finally get around to watching Drive, then our hidden gem where we tell you why you should get around to watching Casualties of War. In the one that got away we'll tell you about how John Carpenter almost directed the epic western Tombstone, and in the remake Hate Watch we look at the World War II film Midway. We look forward to you joining us then. Look after yourselves in the meantime, and see you on the other side. <laughs>